Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I'll invite you to get your Bibles out to the book of Ruth this morning. Joshua Judges Ruth. So it's before 1 Samuel. That's where we were last week was 1 Samuel and the book before that. So kind of in the same time period, really essentially, uh, this is during the time period of the Judges. The book of Ruth is written. It says in the beginning right there in verse 1, this is during the time of the Judges. Uh, but this is, um, this is when, right, when, uh, right before Samuel is born. So we're kind of in this same period of the Judges. But this is Ruth uh, chapter 4. Let's go there to the end of the book. We'll work our way quickly through the four chapters of the book of Ruth in the sermon. We won't hang out a bunch in there. But we'll read this ending uh, as kind of the, a kickoff point for us. So this is Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Grass withers and the flower fades. And the word of our God stands forever. So this morning in our series uh, regarding longing here for Advent, we're going to look here at the, at the book of Ruth and at the longing of Naomi. Uh, the book of Ruth is a, is a fascinating book. I love the book of Ruth. It's a real easy read, four short chapters. But one of the details that I find fascinating about the book of Ruth is that I think it could have just as easily been named the book of Naomi because she's such a central figure, really, of this whole narrative. The narrative, as we just read, ends with this praise, this, this exaltation, this joy of Naomi, and it starts with Naomi. Like, Ruth isn't even in the first verses of the book of Ruth. It really could be a story about the, what's going on, the longing of Naomi. The book begins with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two kids, Malon and Kilion, which their names mean something like sickness and dying, which is a, that's a really bad, those are bad names if you're in the Bible to start off the book with. They, there's, a, there's a famine in Bethlehem, and so they escape to Moab. They run away to Moab to kind of to survive. They're, they're, there's no food in Bethlehem, so they escape. And of course, what happens while they're in Moab, Malon and Kilion, they, they pick up Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth, and then Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion die. And so Naomi is left in Moab with these now daughters-in-law of Ruth and Orpah. And this is where you, this is where the, the, the terrible like descent 
at the start of the book of Ruth. It goes without saying, I think, that Naomi is obviously very sad and in a very bitter place. You could say that she was filled with grievous longing. She, something has gone wrong in her life. Things are not the way she thought they would be. And there's inside of her a deep longing. And we actually see this in Naomi's return to Bethlehem. Because when she comes back, they all recognize her. Hey, Naomi's back. This is great. You can see this on down here in, in uh, chapter 1 when she returns and they, they greet her. She says in verse uh, 1920, she said to these women around her, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified, Naomi, Naomi meaning pleasant. Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's bitter. She returns with longing. But interestingly, who comes home with her? Ruth, right? There's this beautiful scene earlier in the first chapter where they're, they're leaving to go back to Bethlehem and Naomi says to Orpah and to Ruth, her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. I, I, there's no future for you in Bethlehem. I have no sons that you can marry to, to keep the line of Malon and Kilion, Elimelech, Elimelech and Naomi alive. There's no relative to redeem us. Just go home. And Orpah listens and she goes home. But Ruth clings to Naomi. And that's where we get this beautiful passage in chapter 1, verses like uh, 16 and 17, where, where Ruth makes this confession to, Na to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth clings to Naomi and returns back to Bethlehem. And so we find in chapter 2, these women returning to Bethlehem with nothing but longing. They have no means to which provide for themselves. They have no husbands. They have no patriarch of the family. It is just women basically that are there to, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're not, up, not well recognized in the community. They're, they have no occupation. They have no one to farm the land for them. They have no real means of production. They have nothing but need when they return to Bethlehem. They're filled with longing. What's going to happen next? Where is their hope? It's, it's gone. What can happen? So let's contrast for a moment this morning. What, is, what are some ways to long wrongly? Okay, so we're talking about this morning, our series is called The Longed For Son and Living With Right Longing. As we're trying to get to this idea and plant in our own hearts to live with a right kind of longing. That longing is something that really everyone in this broken world deals with. Whether your circumstances are as bleak as Naomi's and Ruth's, or whether you're maybe doing better than them in many circumstances, there still is in every one of us a sense of longing, wanting something more. There's a sense of brokenness, a longing that we all live with. Well, what are some wrong ways to deal with longing? If we're going to talk about right longing, what are some ways to wrong, to long wrongly? That's really kind of hard to say. 
go home and try to say wrong longly <laughs> a whole bunch of times. What are some ways to, to live with longing in a wrong way? Well, Christianity, it often gets pictured as this religion that's all about killing longing and desire. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great uh, moment in mere Christianity when he's writing that the Christian God is often pictured as this guy up in heaven who's just looking for people who are having too much fun to smite them. And that's all God's up there doing. People who have too much desire or who are long, having too much fun to get, tell them to knock it off. And that's kind of this view, this way of viewing Christianity. That it's this religion that's all about killing desire, killing longing. The thought is that if you are a Christian, any longing that you have, any desire that you might have, ought to be drugged into a corner and bludgeoned to death and just, just done away with. Longing is not, we're not supposed to have any longings, and then we're just, just kill all longing. That's actually more like stoicism. Something, it's the idea that what you do with longing is just try to talk yourself out of it. I shouldn't have this longing. I shouldn't have this desire. I should just learn to be happy. Circumstance, you know, just, I'm just going to be fine with the way things are and move on. For some, they think that Christianity plays primarily this role in life. It tells them to do away with the things they long for that they think will give them joy and peace. But C.S. Lewis also in his essays from The Weight of Glory, he says this. He says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. His point, what he means is that God is not finding our longings or our desires too strong. He actually finds them too weak and too easily pleased. The problem with one way to wrong, long, long wrongly, I'm going to mess it up forever. I've got to find a different way to say that. One way to long wrongly is by placing the hopes of that fulfillment on things far less than what they're actually meant to be, to be focused on on things that are far too easily pleased, ultimately misplaced. The trouble is not that we have desires or longings to be killed. It is that we set them on things that cannot satisfy and settle there. Mason King wrote this. I thought this was so good. I read this a couple weeks ago. He says that we often trust false promises of the good life more than Jesus that the, the promises of the good life, the American dream or whatever, we can have it all, you can have the picture-perfect family and the picture-perfect future and all these great things can go for you. We, we trust the false promises of the good life more than Jesus. And the scary thing is that these false promises deliver enough, just enough to get by on, but never what we truly need. What's so deceiving about living with wrong longing is that the way the enemy has arranged the world in such a way is that the things that we are out there that we long for, they give us just enough satisfaction to keep us coming back to the wrong thing over and over and over again. Instead of turning from what ultimately will not satisfy to what might actually satisfy us, what we're actually longing for. 
We often trust those false promises because they deliver just enough to get by on, but never what we truly need. Maybe you've heard another way of living wrongly with Christianity is this idea that Christianity is going to fulfill all your longings in the here and now. Like one, one way is to think Christianity is to make me so uh, sour and boring and just muted that I don't want any joy. <laughs> or Christianity is, is just here really practically to help me get what I want. And it's not usually put that crassly, but practically for some, that is exactly what they think the point of Christianity and following Jesus is. He's going to help you get in this life what you're longing for. Want your spouse to shape up? Come to Jesus and maybe he'll help. Right? Do you want, uh, want your health to improve? Come to Jesus and he'll help you. Do you want your kids to mind? You want your kids to get right, get straightened out? Come to Jesus and he'll make everything better. Do you want to succeed in life? Come to Jesus and he'll make everything work. And on and on we could go with this basic idea that Jesus is just here to be our big cosmic butler and get everything provided for us. Everything that we want, he is going to give for us. That is a dangerous half-truth because the reality is Jesus will give you what you ultimately long for. If you are his child, Jesus will get you ultimately what you long for, which is more of himself. He will. But when you long for the things he provides and not him, he actually cannot help but frustrate those longings because they are placed in something apart from him. Augustine in his confessions, Jim and I have been talking about this through this series, but Augustine writes in his confessions this, he says, If the things of this world delight you, praise God for them, but turn your love away from them and give it to their maker so that in the things that please you, you may not displease him. They, these things of this world that please you, but don't turn your love to them, turn it to Christ, to God, these things, they will rightly turn bitter if God is spurned and the things that come from him are wrongly loved. Loving the things of this world, the things he provides instead of the provider, God cannot help but turn those things bitter. He cannot help but increase your longing because it's placed in the wrong things, the things of the maker instead of the maker himself. There is no rest to be found where you seek it in the things of of this life. In the land of death, you try to find a happy life. It is not there. So the couple contrasts. What's ways to live wrongly with our longing? But what is right longing? Well then, right longing is longing directed to somewhere, something, or someone who can actually fulfill that longing. Living with right longing is longing directed to somewhere, something, or someone who can actually fulfill that longing. So back to Naomi and her story. She, we go on, and, and in this happy providence, uh, Ruth stumbles into a field of a man named Boaz. And uh, this is the welfare system that's set up 
in the nation of Israel, when they go and they, they uh, collect the grain at harvest, they leave a border of grain around the edges so that those who are needy and, and without grain can come along and they can collect and be provided for even though they don't own land. It's kind of their, their welfare system. And so Ruth goes out. She's a, a healthy and evidently a very strong lady. She goes out and, and is gathering grain and it just so happens she wanders into the field of a guy named Boaz who turns out to be actually a kinsman, a relative. A kinsman redeemer is what he is called. He is someone that in this economy can actually marry Ruth and then, and then take over for Malon or Kilion. I can't remember which one Ruth is married to. We do know, but uh, she can take over for the spouse and then keep the line of Naomi going forward. He's a kinsman redeemer. He can redeem this lineage. The guy that Naomi, or he is a person that Naomi said didn't exist at all. So Naomi, either in her grief or anger or something, she's like, I got no, there's no hope for you in Bethlehem. Well, actually there was. There's a guy named Boaz, who's a kinsman redeemer, who can marry them and keep this line of Naomi going. And so kind of uh, through a whole set of circumstances, a whole bunch of details, a whole more crazy ideas, one of them including there being an actual closer kinsman redeemer than Boaz. There wasn't just, not only was there zero, not only was there one, <laughs> There actually were two <laughs> possible people for Ruth to marry. But so anyway, they go and, and Boaz talks to this nameless man who refuses to marry Ruth because of all the responsibilities that would come with Ruth and Naomi and all this land. He refuses to marry Ruth and Boaz then marries Ruth. And a child, like we read this morning, a child is born to them. He's named Obed. Obed fathers Jesse and Jesse fathers David. And yes, that is the, the King David that we read about in Scripture. Now, I want us to see something significant here at the end. Ruth, at the end of this book, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we know that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Like if you, that's just a pretty easy, if you're going to fill out a form of who's the, who's the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. And it's Boaz. That's the, if you're asked, playing Bible trivia somewhere, Boaz is the answer to that question. He's the kinsman redeemer, right? He's both a relative and someone who takes in Ruth to redeem this lineage, right? And care for her and take care of Naomi and well, as well. But look at who they rejoice in. The women, verse 14, what we read already this morning, the women, they say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Oh, right. I've heard that. That's Boaz, right? You think, rejoice, Naomi, you have a redeemer. Yeah, Boaz married Ruth. And so now her line goes on, but they continue. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The redeemer for Naomi was not Boaz, the grown man who marries Ruth. The redeemer is the son. The redeemer is this, the offspring of the womb of Ruth who's going to give birth to Obed, who's going to give birth to, to David. This, this lineage is going to be passed down. Not the men, the wives, you get how that works. But the, the, this, this offspring is going to be passed down that the redeemer who is celebrated is not Boaz, but the son. The son is the redeemer. So something I think is significant is going on here. 
there's a, a glimmer of a greater reality shining in the background of the story. In one sense, it's David, right? Because that's where the book of Ruth goes, Obed and then David. And so there's this huge, like, revelation going on of this Moabite and this Redeemer and Naomi who's going to produce the greatest king of Israel. David is going to be born from this line, out of this story. But something even greater, Jesus is hanging over top of all of this. He is the true son of David. We hear the promise uh, to, to David that he'll have a son who will reign on the throne forever. And that is Jesus. So something really incredible is going on here. I've got a picture just to help us think of, of mountains, I hope here. Yeah, okay, there it is. Uh, this is something called prophetic perspective. This, I don't know, this is just a fun little thing. You maybe have heard of this, maybe you haven't, but this is prophetic perspective. And it's where the, the sometimes I think this happens in scripture without even the people knowing they're doing it. One of them being like Caiaphas who says of Jesus that it's better for one man to die uh, for all than for all to die, that it's better for Jesus to die, basically is what he's saying. And scripture even comments, he did not say this on his own account, but was prophesying the death of Jesus for all of his people, essentially. And sometimes this happens in scripture where they say something that they're not even, I don't think, aware of what they're communicating. But it's, but it's in that background. And so you see here, we've got a this is Mont Blanc in, uh, between France and Italy there in the Swiss Alps. And you see this first mountain here. It looks like predominant big mountain. And then way in the back, there's another mountain that looks like it's maybe even smaller than the mountain in front of it. But actually, you know, if you can tell by the snow caps, even though this mountain looks the same height, maybe not even as short, that back mountain is actually the highest point in the Alps because you can tell the snow cap, it's much higher elevation. But because of the perspective of where this photo is taken from, they don't look any different. They look like the same thing. And it sits kind of in the shadow of each other. And that's prophetic perspective. It's one way to think about Naomi is seeing, and the women around Naomi, they're seeing this redeemer, this son who is coming. And they're seeing Obed, the lion being carried on. And then you go a little further back and you see the mountain, they're actually pointing to David. But then further back, that is actually pointing to the hope of a redeemer of Jesus Christ himself being born. This is what is happening with these words from Naomi. She's found a fulfillment of her longing in a son, but her hope of fulfillment points to a greater fulfillment. Jesus Christ will come from this line. He is the descendant of David who will sit on David's throne forever. He is the anti-type that all the types point towards is Jesus Christ. He is the type fulfillment. So where does this then leave us? We long because life is not yet what it was meant to be and what ultimately it will be for the people of God. Like Naomi, we long because something is not right, right? They escape to Moab, her husband dies, her two sons die. I mean, she should have all her future laid out for her. Something has gone wrong. Something is not right. The bright future, we like Naomi, the bright future that we can all see for ourselves in this world gets dimmed and blanketed by thousands of worries and disappointments. We are made for full fellowship with our maker. 
We read the book of Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve, he makes them for full fellowship with himself. And that has been lost because of sin that has severed our fellowship with our maker. Our rebellion has cut us off from him. And we will find ourselves restless, longing until we rest in the one true place that can be found in right fellowship with him. This full fellowship is one that we long for, but cannot create or restore on our own. And that is why the good news of a Redeemer is such good news. There is a Redeemer who has come and who is yet coming again. Living with right longing, longing that is put upon this Savior who has come in his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas Day, right? But who is yet coming again to restore all things. We live in this time period of the already of the incarnation, but the not yet of the full consummation of all things when Christ will wrap everything up and where he will renew all things in a new heavens and a new earth. We live in this time period in between. And so living with right longing, looking towards that day when all of our desires of full fellowship, that's what we're really longing for. Things are broken here. Things are disappointing here. Things go wrong here. And what we are longing for is not just things to go right, but for the one who can make everything right. And the full fellowship with him in the light of his presence, in the full light of his faith, face, that is what we long for. And so living with right longing, focused on the one who can fulfill it, living with right longing helps us weather the dark clouds of difficulty. Some of them coming from without, a lot of them coming from within. Sometimes the disappointment is not just at all the people around me. Sometimes the disappointment is coming from within me, that I'm not all that I want to be yet that I don't enjoy my life as I should, that I take for granted so many things, that I respond to things in a way that I don't like to. I'm broken and I'm longing not just for all of you to get fixed. <laughs> I'm longing for me to get fixed. I'm longing for God to make me fully new. And so living with right longing helps us weather the dark clouds of difficulty by giving us something beautiful to keep our eyes on, looking to him that day when will come when we will be made new. And it helps us by learning to enjoy the things of this world in their proper place as gifts from God and foretaste of a future glory. Those moments when you're opening presents and the kids are loving it and so happy, that is a foretaste of a future glory. That moment when you have a good conversation with your spouse and you feel loved and whatever that may be, when these moments of, of success, of triumph, those moments of a sports team, when you have the big win or you do something successful and there's joy and excitement, those are, love those in their right place. They're all foretastes of a future joy, of a future glory, of a future win yet on the horizon. There is a king and he has a kingdom. When we spend our efforts and energy trying to build our own kingdom, we end up frustrated, discouraged, and despairing. But with longings grounded in him and trusting in his rescue of us, we can rest assured. We can hope in him when life gets dark and rejoice all the more in him at the beautiful things of this life, knowing they're just a foretaste of the glories we will enjoy when we are freed from sin and liberated to live in the light of his presence.
Let's pray.